The Bowery Boys, episode 260, Journey to Grey Gardens, a tale of two Edies. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Now, Tom is away on vacation for this show, so I am going to completely indulge here, indulge my inner film geek, and spend some time looking into the backstory of one of the most famous documentaries ever made. That film is Grey Gardens. The film, which was directed by brothers Albert and David Maisels, looks at the life of two former society women leading a life of seclusion in a rundown old mansion in East Hampton. Now, for those of you who have seen Grey Gardens, and you'll get a lot of the show if you have seen it already, or the Broadway musical version of the documentary, or the HBO film inspired by the documentary, well, you know that it possesses a certain timeless quality. But there's also a bit of a disembodied quality as well. Mrs. Edith Bouvier Beale, a.k.a. Big Edie, and her daughter Miss Edith Bouvier Beale, a.k.a. Little Edie, live in a sort of pocket universe, in deteriorating circumstances, but they themselves remain poised, witty, and well-read. But I think our histories make us who we are. And so to understand these two extraordinary and eccentric women, we need to understand the historical moments which put them on this path. And that is a story of New York City of debutante balls, Fifth Avenue, Tin Pan Alley, the changing roles of women. And it's a story of the Bouviers, who represent here in this story the hundreds of wealthy, upwardly mobile families trying to maintain their status in a fluctuating world of trust funds and stock market crashes. This is a story about keeping up appearances and the consequences of following your heart. There will be music, there will be dancing, there will be mangy cats, but there will also, in this show, be Jerry. Jerry Torrey will be joining me later in the show. Now, if you've seen the film, you may know him better as the Marble Fawn, a nickname bestowed upon him by Little Edie herself. And so, allow me to reintroduce to you the two women that director David Maisels described as, quote, just like everybody else, but more so. Big Edie and her daughter, Little Edie. Mother doesn't like beer, but she does know how to sing in June. And she had a German governess. She doesn't speak I haven't performed very it's well for your thing. movie. Well, I'll this time. This time. Just take it easy. Mm, no. Dr. Bond and that thing. Thank God they came. To have Mother sitting there and that. Thank God. What, babe? Instead of us fighting away. What? That thing you've got on. That's This old thing? Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah I like it. Just an old See, it does pay to make an effort instead of fighting with each other over it. I never fight, God. Well, Life is too I'm short. Here, I get so mad. But I, so many well, things. you mustn't. That's what's happening to your face. It shows in your oh, face. Age and all uh, No, every oh, negative God. word uh, that you say or sentence or paragraph, it shows right. It just makes those lines of unhappiness. I'm just mad because I can't And get you off. shroud your mind in nothing but black. So don't shroud your, shroud your mind in, in black. I shroud my mind in cerise. 
and light green. No, I didn't know. That's my idea. Edith Ewing Bouvier was born in Nutley, New Jersey on October 5th, 1895. Although others may have later observed another date as being equally important to her. A month after her fourth birthday, in November of 1899, when her family, the Bouviers, made their official debut in the New York Social Register. Now, this isn't just a euphemism for social acceptance. This was an actual directory of families that truly mattered in New York society. And here, in the waning days of the Gilded Age, it was more important than ever before. Breaking it down, there were basically two tiers within New York's high society, the old families and the nouveau riche. To be considered for New York's social register, one needed to display an obvious show of wealth or class, and often on occasion, both. But to access the advantages of the more established families, of whom we've elaborated on many times on this podcast, the Vanderbilts, the Skirmerhorns, and on and on, well, one had to marry into those families. You also needed an acceptable address on or near Fifth Avenue. And you needed recognition by those old families, by the old guard. Just three years before Edith's birth, the Astors threw one of their many legendary balls for the 400, so named for the number of ultra-elite that could fit in Mrs. William Astor's ballroom. The aggressively upwardly mobile Bouviers had generations of class, the intermarital links, and even the Fifth Avenue address. Fortunately for the Bouviers, by the mid-1890s, the social register greatly expanded its list of the desirable. But as a result, their lives were under a microscope. The Bouviers were the descendants of French cabinet makers who immigrated to Philadelphia in the early 19th century. Now, some have written about Edith's later stubbornness, her independent streak that was to do to her, quote, French genes. Edith's revered granduncle, M.C. Bouvier, spent over half a century in a stately New York brownstone at 1446th Street, right off of Fifth Avenue, anchoring the family in the heart of New York's elite district. When he died in 1935, they tore the brownstone down behind him and built an office tower. But the family's wealth, built on generations of successes in real estate and Wall Street speculation, could not disguise one possible barrier to entry into this nearly exclusively waspish social enclave. The Bouviers were devout Catholics. While this didn't present any serious social difficulties, Catholic Americans would face a number of personal discriminations in the public sphere. By 1918, when Edith was in her early 20s, Al Smith became the first Catholic governor of New York, but his presidential ambitions in 1928 were partially destroyed by strong anti-Catholic sentiment. The United States would finally get a Catholic president in 1961, a gentleman named John Fitzgerald Kennedy, whom the Bouvier family would come to know very well. Edith's father was John Vernal Bouvier Jr., a successful New York attorney, and her mother, Maud Sargent, the daughter of a prosperous paper manufacturer. Their daughter was described as honey blonde and headstrong, bright and athletic. Or as John Davis, the Bouvier family historian, would describe her, quote, 
mischievous, unruly, self-indulgent, and disrespectful of authority. On December 12, 1913, 18-year-old Edith Bouvier made her society debut at a debutante ball of the type that, believe it or not, still occur today at the Waldorf Astoria and in other aristocratic enclaves across the country. Edith's cotillion was held at the famed ballroom of Sherry's Restaurant at 44th Street and 5th Avenue, just a stone's throw away from her great-uncle's home. According to the New York Times, she wore, quote, a frock of white satin and chiffon trimmed with rhinestones. Daughters played very specific roles in securing a family's reputation in elegant society. Edith's two brothers would be expected to carry on the family name and expand the family's bank account through employment. Edith's chief responsibility was to embody the family's inherent graces for the purposes of marrying well. Her poise and beauty were highly prized, her true personal ambitions less so. She was groomed for her position at the famous Ms. Porter's Finishing School in Farmington, Connecticut, where students were, quote, taught how to dance, set a table, arrange flowers, and walk into a room. It was a school designed to hone the intelligence of young women and then to have them turn around and essentially disguise it. It was reinforced here to Edith the dangers of straying down a frivolous, non-traditional path. Her schooling, at first, seemed to actually reward. For a little over four years after her society debut, on January 17, 1917, Edith married a Southern attorney named Phelan Beale, 14 years older than her, in a sumptuous wedding ceremony at St. Patrick's Cathedral. By 1917, of course, this stretch of Fifth Avenue, Midtown, surrounding St. Patrick's, had rapidly changed as the elite abandoned these Midtown homes for more spacious ones on the Upper East Side. But the pews of St. Patrick's were filled with bold-faced socialites on that particular afternoon, over 2,000 of them, in fact, and all to see Edith Ewing Bouvier Beale become a bride. Before the year was out, Edith had given birth to her first child, a baby girl that Edith gave the gift of her own name. And so for the rest of the story here, we shall refer to them as Big Edie and Little Edie. The next year, in 1918, Phelan Beale would join the law firm of Edith's father, John. Both husband and father were in allegiance as to Edith's responsibilities, and her course in life was firmly and predictably set. But there was one problem. Edith Ewing Bouvier Beale loved music. Now, women were supposed to be skilled in music. Mastery at the parlor piano, for instance, was an excellent way to attract a husband. And wives trained in the musical arts could entertain the children or her husband after a long day of work. But Edie really, really loved music. She wanted to make music. She wanted to be a performer, something no respectful young society woman would ever admit to aspiring to. Edith had even wanted to sing at her own wedding at St. Patrick's. She grew up in an unprecedented era of music history. When Edith was born, recorded music via wax cylinders 
were available for the first time commercially. But by the time she was a teenager, a thriving recording industry had developed devices like the Victrola. And imagine being a teenager in the era of Tin Pan Alley, in the years when the music publishers were all situated down there on 28th Street. The composers of Tin Pan Alley developed popular music as we know it, and their influence spilled over to the musical stage, an industry that had finally by this time planted itself in Times Square at the optimal moment in history to influence the passions of Edith Ewing Bouvier Beale. We belong together, we're happy together, and life is a song. When we are together, we know we are where we belong. We belong together like birds of a feather, together we thrive. Little caring whether the rest of the world is alive. If you're musically inclined in the 1910s, so a hundred years ago, how could you not be entranced by all of this that was going on? How could you curb your musical urges when a genuine phenomenon was taking place, the birth of the American musical tradition? Music spilled into every aspect of her social life. Her safe space was around the grand piano. She had two more children after Little Edie, her sons Phelan Bill Jr. and Bouvier Bill. Their first home was at 987 Madison at East 77th Street on the site of today's Hotel Carlisle. But like so many wealthy families, they eventually relocated to Park Avenue the newly christened Street of Gold, lined with brand new apartment complexes for the rich. And here, in these lavish places, with a full staff and all the comforts and privileges of upper-class living, Big Edie believed that she could entertain her fantasies of becoming a singer. Naturally, both Edith's father and husband frowned upon her excessive musical fancies. This was long before socialites and countesses strove to become pop music and reality TV stars. Musicians almost never came from the social register. Wives and daughters should make the society pages in the right ways, to be seen and not heard, and especially not heard in song. Cultivating the Bouvier's reputation as a family of important heritage was so important for Edith's father that in 1925, he produced a genealogical record called Our Forebears, alleging the family's connection to French royalty to an ancient house of Fontaine near Grenoble. His work was ingrained into the family legacy, and it wasn't until one member of the Bouvier family entered the White House as First Lady in 1961 that biographers noticed that our forebears was often exaggerated and in many places inaccurate. Yet according to author Sarah Bradford, quote, our forebears was treated with the reverence accorded the family Bible. And so, Big Edie, and later her daughter, would continue to cling to these family stories, even as their lifestyles became increasingly unbecoming of alleged royal blood. But what our erstwhile queen here needed was a castle, and the corridors of society here on Park Avenue were becoming increasingly oppressive to her. 
1924, Phelan Beale bought his family a weekend home at the far end of Long Island in a growing wealthy enclave called East Hampton in a house they called Grey Gardens. F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby had been published two years before, in 1922, recounting the extravagant adventures of the wealthy along the Gold Coast, Long Island's northern shore. But New York's upwardly mobile were also flocking to the eastern end of the island, to a set of old colonial-era towns collectively referred to as the Hamptons. By the 1920s, New Yorkers could head out to the Hamptons via the Long Island Railroad or by automobile on the Long Island Motor Parkway. The wealthy began coming out to the village of East Hampton in 1899 with the opening of the Maidstone Golf Club. On top of becoming a destination for wealthy New Yorkers, it also had a reputation as an artist colony. The Bouviers were regulars in the Hamptons' social scene. In 1915, Edith's parents would own a home named Wildmore, then later upgrade to a lavish home, which reportedly took the name of the Native American word for place of peace, Lasada. The 28-room Grey Gardens was close to Edith's parents' escape, Windmore. Although the name Grey Gardens would feel very appropriate in later decades, it was actually named by horticulturist Anna Gilman Hill, who lived here with her husband in the 1910s. According to Hill, quote, It was truly a grey garden. The soft grey of the dunes, cement walls, and sea mists gave us our color scheme, as well as our name. The garden was not gray for long. The property's high hedges and dense thicket of trees allowed for a great degree of privacy, and Big Edie soon shed her Park Avenue veneer, retreating to the home more and more often, sometimes with her children and sometimes in the company of strangers. To quote at length from John Davis's book, The Bouviers, Portrait of an American Family, quote, Edith used her free time to cultivate interests and ideas no one in her family could appreciate or comprehend. She played the piano and sang to a husband who would have preferred that she have the faucets in the bathroom fixed. She invited people to the house, painters, writers, theatrical types, who seemed like phonies and time wasters to her husband. She dressed in an arty way that would inevitably draw snickers from the stuffy people who invited her to cocktail parties and dinner dances on the island. And in matters religious and philosophical, she became an outlandish free thinker, renouncing the religion in which she had been baptized and indulging in speculations and opinions her lawyer husband and lawyer father regarded as utterly beyond the pale. To quote from Gail Sheehy's landmark 1972 article on the Beals, quote, Material success had become the real Bouvier god, as it was for so many of that wildly prosperous era. Only Big Edie among the Bouviers dropped away from bourgeois conventions. Edie was isolating her family breadwinners at a very unfortunate moment. For in the fall of 1929 came the stock market crash, imperiling the world financial markets and the personal fortunes of most of the upwardly mobile residents of New York's social register. The aftermath of the Wall Street crash only widened the emotional gap between Edith and her husband Phelan, who felt he could no longer fund his wife's frivolous lifestyle. 
But another moment in the year 1929 would also have a profound effect on the future of the Bouviers. On July 28th of that year, in a Southampton hospital, Edith's sister-in-law, Janet Norton Lee, gave birth to her daughter, Jacqueline Bouvier. As a young girl, Jackie and her sister Lee would spend many a pleasant time at Beale's Hampton home of Grey Gardens. By the early 1930s, Phelan Beale separated from Edith, who then moved to Grey Gardens permanently. The two lived separate lives in dramatically separate spheres, both keeping watch over the lives of their three children, Phelan mostly from New York and Edith from the Hamptons. He would provide limited child support, but payment for Edith's increasingly bohemian lifestyle ceased. And thus begins the gradual downfall of Grey Gardens, the impeccable, lush, and beautifully maintained oasis. Of course, much of this strife was invisible to the couple's three children, and in particular the child closest to Edith Bouvier Beale, the daughter with her father's airs and her mother's spirit. Little Edie. But you see, in dealing with me, the relatives didn't know that they were dealing with a staunch character. And I tell you, if there's anything worse than a staunch woman, S-T-A-U-N-C-H. There's nothing worse, I'm telling you. Despite her parents' separation and eventual divorce, Little Edie Beale remained poised for New York high society on a similar course of social acceptance that her mother in her youth had once been on. She too attended Miss Porter's finishing school, like her mother, and, like her mother, eventually and combatively rejected the school's dictates of social conformity. Little Edie was statuesque, absolutely gorgeous, a precocious writer, a bit of a show-off, and something surely inherited from her mother, she was filled with the desire to be a performer. Really, more than a performer, to be a star. As I look at you, a thought goes through my mind. What a marvelous find you to make upon the screen. I am proud that I have you right by my side. But I'd be satisfied to lend you to the public to be seen. Little Edie's fate was addressed in a startling letter from 1934 between her estranged parents, Phelan appearing distraught at his dwindling income. Dear Edith, I can borrow on my insurance sufficient funds to keep little Edie in Miss Porter's school for the next year. I am glad that you have the home in East Hampton because it is in tip-top repair and may be occupied comfortably the year round. Offer some excuse to the kids about remaining in East Hampton and attending school in Southampton. Make a game of it so they will like the idea. Even with little Edie, you should not confide in her, otherwise she may think that we are headed for the poorhouse tomorrow, and it will destroy all the happiness of her year at Farmington. There is nothing more to write just at this moment, because I must leave in the next five minutes to get the airplane to Washington. I do hope that the machine crashes, because it would be a very pleasant exit for a very tired man. Your husband, signed Phelan. Her parents reunited briefly on New Year's Day of 1936 for Little Edie's coming out ball from the New York Times. 
Mr. and Mrs. Phelan Beale gave a supper dance last night at the Hotel Pierre to introduce to society their daughter, Miss Edith Bouvier Beale. The debutante received under a bower of cybodium ferns and smilex. The debutante wore a gown of white net, appliqued in silver, and a wreath of gardenias in her hair. Little Edie was exceptionally popular with the young men of East Hampton. She also began modeling bathing suits, a fact that must have further paralyzed any social ambitions. During this period, she reportedly dated the likes of Howard Hughes, J. Paul Getty, and even Joe Kennedy Jr., the older brother of JFK. Certainly, she could have a pick of any eligible bachelor on the Hampton circuit. She later claimed she also dated a few men who went off to the battles of World War II, and some of them died there. This was also the fate of Joe Kennedy Jr. And yet years passed, and the aging debutante could never find herself a husband. Most attribute this to the extraordinarily close relationship between mother and daughter. And by the 1940s, her mother was suffering supremely. Big Edie was still welcome over at Lasada, her father's Hampton home, where she gathered the family round the piano to regale them with popular standards. The children, like Jackie and Sister Lee, would remember these moments very fondly. Big Edie's fate was sealed on December 12, 1942, when she showed up to her son's wedding 45 minutes late and, quote, dressed like an opera star. Her father was so enraged by her flagrant behavior that his will was changed and her portion of the trust greatly reduced. Big Edie's two sons would be put in charge of her income from the trust. From Davis's book, quote, The result of this attitude was an estrangement from her flesh and blood so total that by the mid-40s she could do nothing but withdraw from them and their world entirely. Big Edie retreated into Grey Gardens and her cultivated life of music and freedom, the grounds growing unkempt and the 28 rooms of the mansion sliding into disrepair. If a door was closing for Edith Ewing Bouvier Beale, it had not yet done so for her daughter. For in 1947, at nearly 30 years of age, little Edie left Grey Gardens to make one final attempt at life in the Big Apple. There could only be one place for a gal like Little Edie in New York, an accommodation for single independent women that was just one block from Park Avenue. This was the Barbizon Hotel for Women at Lexington and 63rd Street. According to the New York Times, the Barbizon served, quote, as the sheltered entry point into society, business, and the arts in New York for several generations of proper young women. It was from these guarded doors, no men allowed at any hour, that little Edie walked every morning to pursue her dreams as a model and actress. As Edie later told New York Magazine writer Gail Sheehy, quote, on the sly, a friend sent me to Max Gordon, the famous Broadway producer. The minute he saw me, he said, you're a musical comedian. I was all set to audition for the Theater Guild that summer, I modeled for Backrack while I was waiting for the summer to audition. Someone squealed to my father. Do you know he marched up Madison Avenue and saw my picture and put his fist right through Mr. Backrack's window? By the way, that was famed photographer Fabian Backrack, incidentally. And one of the many strange parallels with her cousin Jackie, Backrack would later go on to photograph John F. Kennedy. 
Continuing Gail's story here, quote, she asked Edie, did you ever go for the audition? I asked, desperate for the end of the story. Quote, oh, no, mother's got the cats. That's when she brought me down from New York to take care of them. The details of Edie's late 40s, early 50s adventures are fuzzy, as are many of Edie's later recollections. At one point, we know, though, there was a married man involved. At all points of her brief stint back in New York here, she was roundly castigated by her father and mocked in whispers by the polite society that had once feted her at the Hotel Pierre. Her hair began falling out. No one's really sure of the exact reason, and one can only imagine the unspoken pressures of being a single model and actress in New York in the early 50s, the daily indignities, the casting couches. Little Edie's road to the big screen would not be through her efforts in these years. The Barbizon Hotel saw thousands of aspiring women traipse through its door. Lauren Bacall, Grace Kelly, Elaine Stritch, and Liza Minnelli. But in 1952, Little Edie passed through the lobby a final time and returned home to her mother at Grey Gardens. There, in that deteriorating, derelict mansion in the East Hamptons, by the strangest twist of fate, the two Edies would at last find fame, but of a very 1970s sort. A view into Grey Gardens with one of the few people to know the two Edies in their later years, a man welcomed into the mansion ever briefly as a friend, the Marble Fawn, and the rest of the story after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. 
But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. The wedding of Senator John F. Kennedy recalls Newport's one-time social grandeur. Speaker of the House Martin, Congresswoman Edith North Rogers, Senator and Mrs. Leverett Saltonstall, screen celebrity Marion Davies, and former Ambassador and Mrs. Joseph Kennedy, parents of the groom are among the personalities on hand to make this the top society wedding of the year. For the spectators outside the church, it's a real storybook wedding. A radiant bride, the former Jacqueline Bouvier, and a handsome groom. With a pretty wife and a politically rising star, the future seems bright for the junior senator from Massachusetts. On September 12, 1953, little Edie's cousin Jacqueline Bouvier married a Massachusetts U.S. representative that I've already mentioned named John F. Kennedy. Over seven years later, on November 8, 1960, Kennedy was elected president of the United States, defeating Richard Nixon. And then just two weeks after that, Jacqueline, who had already given birth to a daughter, Caroline, in 1957, gave birth to another child, John F. Kennedy Jr. In January of 1961, the family moved into the White House. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m., Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Just shy of three years after the birth of John Jr., on November 22nd, 1963, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. The decade would bring further assassinations. John's brother, Robert Kennedy, civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, and a withering chaotic war in Vietnam. The world of music veered from Tin Pan Alley to rock and roll, Elvis and the Beatles. Man landed on the moon, and the cash-strapped city of New York hurtled towards a financial crisis. And through all of these moments, through all of these moments, the Beals, Big Edie and Little Edie, remained living in gray gardens, barely leaving the house, welcoming in only a few visitors through their entranceway. Time had certainly stopped. Few modern tunes made their way into the musical repertoire performed in Grey Garden's vacant halls. What hadn't stopped, though, was decay. A man named Tom Logan came by off and on for nine years, working as a handyman for the Beals. One evening in 1964, he came by the house very seriously ill and collapsed. He died there in the kitchen of pneumonia. Little Edie often wondered if Grey Garden was haunted by his ghost. Gone were the days of jovial song around the parlor piano, an instrument that had been owned by Big Edie's frequent companion, George Gould Strong. The piano now sat gathering dust. Strong died in 1963 and was buried nearby in the East Hampton Cemetery. One can sort of imagine that this world of theirs, so closed off from the rest of the universe, one can imagine them just fading away. 
Are you ready for your steeplechase? Lorraine, Lorraine, Lorraine. You're booked to ride your capping race today at Kuntalee. You're booked to ride vindictive for all the world to see. So keep him straight and keep him first and win the run for me. Its husbands could be cruel. I have known for seasons three. But oh, to ride vindictive while a baby cries for me. But she mastered young vindictive. All the gallant lass was she. He kept him straight and kept him first and won the race as near as near could be. But he killed her at the brook against the pollen willow tree. Oh, he killed her at the brook of the brute for all the world to see. And no one but the baby cried for poor Lorraine, Laurie. I cry every time I do that. Better not to have a husband. Furthermore, he wanted that baby all himself. That's why he did it, killed the mother. Aren't men terrible? Absolutely terrible. I get very sad when I say we would never really know their story, of course, if not for a couple things here. Number one, we're here now at 1971. They were related to one of the most famous women in the world, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, now living in New York City. Where else? On the Upper East Side at 1045th Avenue at 85th Street. The other reason we know their story, of course, is due to the perturbed residents of the East Hampton community. In October of 1971, the Suffolk County Health Department came to the Beals house following up on reports of diseased cats and a rundown furnace. Such an incident might have escaped notice had it not been pieced together who exactly these Beale women really were. From a New York Daily News article from November 20th, 1971. The aunt and cousin of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who live in a rambling 28-room mansion in an ultra-swank Suffolk County community of East Hampton, have labeled as atrocious charges by health officials that their home is unfit for human habitation. Our home has been and is beautiful, just like one of those Louisiana mansions, Miss Edith Bouvier Beale said. Inspectors had found eight diseased cats running freely, garbage strewn over the floors, and in one room, a five-foot pile of dog and cat food cans. Not true, Ms. Beale claimed. I personally have taken care of the cats, and they are all right except for the one which has a swollen eye. In another article, a reporter managed to interview Big Edie, quoted her as saying, I really must write Jacqueline and tell her about the whole thing from start to finish. But she needn't have worried, for the story, once it broke, made national headlines. Mrs. Onassis did eventually find out. There wasn't a week that passed, it seemed, that some reporter was out there staking out the house. And little Edie, of course, would talk to any reporter who made their way onto the grounds. In one article in Newsday from 1972, Oh, it was very gay here. We had a Spanish-walled garden. I used to dance in there to Valencia. I was very wild, really. The Beals fought back eviction notices well into 1972. Newspapers report that Jackie and her sister Lee Ratzewell did visit the Beals in an attempt to get them to move. 
Failing that, though, they did manage to hire a lawyer to protect their kin's right of privacy, and they began paying some of the bills which had accrued at the estate. But these simple improvements were but a dim polish on a mansion that continued to deteriorate. In 1974, the Beals more warmly received another guest to Grey Gardens, not a reporter, but a neighborhood teenager whose infatigable curiosity got the better of him. But here's how it all began. I was working for Mr. Gerald Geddes on Lily Pond Lane. I was an assistant gardener. I made $100 a week. It was great. I had room and board. It was wonderful for a teenager. I had the ocean, a swimming pool that I used to use. No one else did. You're listening to Jerry Torrey. Every day I went down a different country road. My chores were very light. But that one day I went down a country road that I had not yet ventured. And I remember going straight down Lily Pond Lane until there's a T. And then I made a right at the end of that road. And then the hedges, they grew taller quickly. Like They were three stories tall. And I, I said... Are these hedges? I, I mean, I've never seen hedges this tall. And then I turned left, and the peak of what I know, now know as the boys' room was the only visible portion of the mansion. It was just the very top of the mansion I could see. And I lost my footing on my bicycle and tumbled down to the, uh, to the pavement. Jerry is one of only a small handful of people featured in Grey Gardens that are not the Edies themselves. The first day I mustered up the courage to go beyond the hedges and climb over the thorns and the wild rose bushes, there were rabbits and mosquitoes and a hot summer day. It was as wild as walking through a forest. There was a Cadillac in the driveway. The key was still in the ignition. And the car door, the driver's door, was ajar. And if you had tried to close that door, you couldn't because the vines had grown all around it and it was impossible to shut the door. And there was still air in the little white wall tires. So it was like, how come this car is here? Why is this driveway so impassable? You couldn't have moved that car if it ran anyway. He began visiting the house in 1974 and quickly befriended the two women. Little Edie, in her flair for drama, called him the Marble Fawn, a reference to the 1860 novel written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Jerry was just a teenager when he stumbled upon this haunted, overgrown place. And I'll always remember the creaking of the porch. I, it was wobbling. And I went, I cleared the, some of the dust from the diamond-shaped windows, and I looked in, there was cobwebs draped along the banister and all throughout the vestibule. There were cobwebs in a library and in a dining room on the furniture over what looked like a fireplace, which was a hearth. Edie had walked through a tunnel that she used to get to the front door to collect the groceries from Newtown Grocer, who would leave them on the front porch every three days. I knock on the door Quickly, I see Edie was walking by the first, second landing, and her white shoes were traveling. Then down quickly through the cobweb tunnel, she then opened the screen door and said, Mother, the marble fawn is here. The moment she opened the door, the stench, it was 
ammonia and rotten timbers and powerful. Yeah, my eyes teared up. Tori has a really extraordinary life, as you can imagine, and he hasn't really been able to shake these days with the Beals. He just released a book called The Marble Fawn of Grey Gardens, co-written by Tony Mayetta, recounting some amazing stories about these two women. She, they lived in their entire world through music, which is alone as unique as their personalities. They lived and related through song, and they, Mrs. Villaniti would recite verse and poetry of course, within the conditions of that one little room. And I did never question their lifestyle or the conditions of the mansion. I was a guest. I loved them enough. I didn't care. I wanted to help. I was, I was a guest. Who am I to judge what they're doing and how they're living? Big Edie still retained her pristine, genteel manners, even though relegated to a bed on the second floor that she barely left. And it was it's so real to me. I can still see the raccoon tails hanging from the ceiling and cats scurrying all throughout the floor in every direction away from me, wild. Mrs. Beale turned and looked at me and she said, you need to eat a broiled piece of chicken and a baked potato and a green salad to maintain that beautiful face of yours. And I was floored because I was really uptight, but I was also overwhelmed with the sight, the sounds, the cobwebs. But here's this elegant woman reclining in a tattered chaise lounge, being as being more responsive to me than anyone I had in the recent past known. My mother, yes. But no one had been that kind right off the bat to me. And I just said, I'm here to help you with anything. And we became the closest of friends immediately. It was like we were we had known each other, but she, Mrs. Beale, had known me more than I knew her. Little Edie, meanwhile, retained her sense of style and surefire charm, garbed in a headscarf to hide her thinning hair. She remained a steadfast protector of her mother, while at the same time expressing continued desires to escape, to return back to New York, or to travel, to make something of her life while, while she was still in the shade of youth. Of course, this often put her at odds with Jerry. Mrs. Beale never gave me a hard time. Edie would lock me out. I would not know why she put the chair up against the back door. I mean, I, I was locked out six out of ten times because of her, her fear that I was great getting too close to her mother. Well, we were already friends, and that was that. The tale of how their lives became a film is almost as strange as every other single aspect of this story so far. Now, even if they had never found the Beals... Brother filmmakers Albert and David Mazels would have already been documentary film legends, making two early classics, Salesman, which came out in 1969, about door-to-door -door Bible salesmen, and then the next year, Gimme Shelter, a movie that is definitely not about Bible salesmen, but rather The Rolling Stones. Their style was direct, nouveau, fresh, and exciting, in a piece with vanguard American cinema of the late 60s and early 70s. In 1972, the brothers were hired to work on a film with photographer Peter Beard about the life of Lee Ratzewell, a.k.a. the sister of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. The film was to be a look at the early lives of both Lee and Jackie, 
The brothers, however, upon meeting the Beals, were immediately taken with telling their story instead. Well, Ratzewell pulled the plug of that film project, which freed the Maisels to then pursue a project on the Beals. Filmed over six weeks, capturing the women and Jerry and a bunch of raccoons and cats with an almost uncomfortable frankness. In fact, the film received some rather negative reviews from critics when it came out, who believed the Maisels were exploiting the women, entirely conjuring up all these playful and wacky behaviors for the camera. Of course, from the perspective of our reality TV reality today, the critics seem kind of naive. Albert Maisel responded back then, quote, as with the people in our other films, these women's lives are of value to themselves and to us. We are entering a new era of art, life itself, where we can start to illuminate what dark areas are left in the human experience. Adding to that, according to Jerry, those harsh critiques just really weren't very fair anyway. It's a, Edie was always on when the film was being made, but if people ask me that this question, was Edie like that in real life? And actually, she was, but exaggerated more for the cameras. Mrs. Bill and Edie sought the very venue of song and of dance and theater. All their lives, they would sing and dance to a song of a verse. It was impervious to them what was going on outside that door in the corridor. And they loved theater, song and dance, and to see it come to fruition as it has on in a theater musical, an HBO film. It's the very venue they sought all their lives, and it's so honor to be alive to witness the joy these two ladies brought to the world for their eccentricities, for their free spirit, and their compassion for each other. garden walls and the stars begin to flicker in the sky through the mist of a memory you wander back to me breathing my name with a sigh in the still of once again I hold you tight Though you're gone Your love lives on When moonlight beams And as long as my heart will beat Lover will always meet Here in my deep purple dreams On February 20th, 1976, the Beals returned to Fifth Avenue. The Maisel's film, Grey Gardens, made a splashy public premiere at the Paris Theater at West 58th Street in the shadow of the Plaza Hotel. The Paris opened in 1948 and was the place to have your movie premiere back in the day. But this wasn't the official debut. It had been brought to the New York Film Festival the year before. And then, perhaps more famously, there was even one earlier screening for the mother and daughter on the second floor of Grey Gardens itself. The film changed their lives and brought their unique world to an end. 
On February 5th, 1977, slightly less than a year after the opening of Grey Gardens at the Paris Theatre, Edith Ewing Bouvier-Beale died at Southampton Hospital. She's buried at Most Holy Trinity Catholic Cemetery in East Hampton, alongside many members of the Bouvier family, including her mother and father. Little Edie was now truly free to pursue whatever she wanted to do in her life. And yet, she now had a most unusual profile, a singular profile. Many saw her as a figure of pity, perhaps somebody broken and possibly mentally ill. Others saw her as triumphant, as even a gay icon. You know, imagine being 60 years old and finally, at last, securing a life of your own direction. So it should come as no surprise that Little Edie finally took the leap to the stage. Little Edie, the cabaret star. Reno Sweeney was a legendary cabaret venue at 126th West 13th Street. From 1972 to 1978, this magical stage gave stars like Peter Allen and Patti Smith an intimate venue, and one which jump-started New York's cabaret scene in the careers of some of the city's most important artists. And for a single week in January of 1978, the stage was given over to little Edie Beale. According to the New York Times, quote, Miss Beale tried out her act at a sneak preview at Reno Sweeney on New Year's Day wearing an eye patch, a slinky old red dress of her mother's, and a feathery red headdress. The audience received her singing politely, with a few titters, but went wild during the snappy question-and-answer session. Asked what she thought of television, Ms. Beale replied, It's great for national emergencies. Her favorite department store, she said, was May's. Although, she said, I haven't been there yet. She dines once a day at 5 p.m., mainly on fruits and vegetables, and when asked whether she expects her famous cousin Jackie to come and see her perform, she replied, I told her not to come here. I thought she'd upset my act. Ms. Beale, who was guaranteed a minimum of $1,500 for a six-day stand, scoffed when asked after the rehearsal if she thought she was being exploited. Nonsense, she said. At my age, I'm lucky to get any kind of work. Besides, this is my dream, what I've always wanted to do. Now, hopefully, after you listen to this show, you'll head over to the great website, Grey Gardens Online, to check out some wonderful ephemera related to the Beals. There they feature an interview with music director David Lewis, who served as Edie's piano player for the cabaret show. Of one of her shows, he said, quote, at the end of the evening, she sang what I felt was the high point of the show, Noel Coward's beautiful and tender song, Zigroina. The audience cheered her at the finale of the show, and no one was laughing. At the end of the week's engagement, we toasted to her success. I never saw her again. She didn't seem to have any friends or a social life. A possible future as a singer or performer wasn't even brought up. I was quite upset when I heard she had died in 2002 in Florida. I only wished that she could have seen and participated in her resurgence as a fashion and theatrical icon, thanks to the musical Grey Gardens. Even after 30 years, I still remember a beautiful, otherworldly woman softly singing Noel Coward's lyrics to a hushed audience.
Little Edie, Ms. Edie Bouvier Beale, died in her home in Bal Harbor, Florida, on January 14, 2002, almost 24 years to the day of that now famous cabaret opening in the West Village. Her marble fawn, Jerry Torrey, currently lives in Queens. He's a sculptor, or he would call himself a stonecutter, actually. He's a former cab driver with a fantastic life story featured in the book that I mentioned, The Marble Fawn of Grey Gardens, co-written by Tony Mayetta. He was brought back into the Grey Gardens fold by a very happy coincidence. Now, you can hear my entire interview with Jerry Torrey if you're a supporter of the Barry Boys on Patreon, where for just a small amount each month, you can help us to continue to produce new episodes of this show, to conjure up other exciting live events and things like that, and of course, producing little extra audio stuff just for you. You can sign up there at patreon.com slash Boys. Check out our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, for some great old photos of the Beals and of early 20th century New York and the Hamptons. Of course, the clips you heard on this show are from the two films by the Maisels, Grey Gardens and the Beals of Grey Gardens. My thanks to Jerry Torrey, Ted Orion Shepard, and Tony Maietta, to Argo Studios, and to all of the great websites and fan pages related to Grey Gardens that have given me so much inspiration for this show over the past few weeks. Tom Myers will be back for our next show, back to, back to business. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. <laughs>